When, when I can afford my garage full of fine Italian automobiles, I know where exactly. I'm going. <laughs> I know where exactly. I'm going. Because you don't want them at home. It's too risky for you, right? Even if you have like let's say a Jackson Hole on your wall and you have kids, yeah. maybe you don't want like this two million dollar asset to be like destroyed for some reason to people. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Seed Stories. This is your host, John Deshotsky. I've got my friend Nicholas here from Courtyard. Courtyard is a new company that provides the infrastructure to securely tokenize physical assets into NFTs. And this is pretty cool, like legitimately a fantastic use case for trading cards to be tokenized into NFTs. It's like every kid's dream. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for thanks for having me. Great to be here and tell the story. So. Yeah, so we have a big announcement. Courtyard just announced a seed raise. Obviously, we're on seed stories to talk all about that. But before we get into all those details, you've got a crazy story. Traveled all around the world. You know, speak a bunch of different languages. You know, everything from MBA to international business studies, um, Y Combinator. You name it, but. You know, what I always ask people is kind of where did it all begin? When you were in the sandbox as a little kid, did you know that you wanted to be a startup founder? Startup founder, uh, maybe. I, I knew I wanted to do something with technology. So definitely was uh, geared towards like innovation, technology and international as well. So uh, I, I moved in a bunch of different places, as you, as you mentioned. So. What was um, your first introduction to technology? I mean, I remember my dad brought home the Apple IIe one day. Green screen, you know, command lines. And we were like, wow, this is the future. I get the same feeling today when I play with the GPT-3, you know, that like Definitely, you, get into a, yeah. you go into a dark hole and uh, you don't come out for hours. I guess, do you remember what your first experience was when sort of technology and computers and things like that really kind of struck you? Definitely. I think it's, it was when I was about eight years old and I essentially had my first, I was dying to get a phone and nobody had a phone apart from like in, in my class all the kids and i had like this big motorola phone that i was bringing to school and i was the only one with nobody to call initially and so i was basically only able to call my grandma or at home that was pr that was pretty much it but i was really fascinated about like this way of like communicating with uh that you can like bring with you and like this big cell phone it was not that's amazing at all. yeah did you have snake on there the game where you could play yeah, remember that one? That. It was before that. I got like the the Nokia afterwards with like the Space Invader and the Snake stuff, definitely. Um, but like this was even before. So there was nothing to do on this phone except for calling. And uh, yeah, but it was, I was fascinated with it. So yeah. So you get your Nokia phone, you're eight years old. You're like, wow, this technology is really powerful. I have legitimately like a computer in my hand. When you went to university after graduating high school and stuff like that, did you immediately go into computer science or what did you study? So it's an interesting question. So my, my, my dad is initially an engineer and I saw him work on the business side of things his, his whole life, even being an engineer. And I decided to essentially studying a bit of like engineering and business together. It's a program in, 
in Belgium that's called business engineering. So I had like all like the math class and like all the, the physics and like the, the programming as well as like some business uh, business class on this. So I wanted kind of a, a bit of both because I knew like in order to launch great product, you need to also understand like markets and how to, to go to markets and marketing and all those, all those stuff. So uh, it was a good combination there. Business engineering, I haven't heard of that, but that combines two things that I think a lot of people are pretty passionate about. You also did something called international management. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really cool program in Europe that is very international. So they pick essentially one school in every country that's supposed to be yeah. one of the best school in each country. And you have a program where you do six months there, six months there, six months there. Uh, with people from all of those schools together. So you only have one Belgian person every single time and you're with like a, a Swedish person, like a, like from all over the place, they are those class of like a group of 30 people in a really cool spot. So we we went to Brazil, uh, like I went to, to Sao Paulo, for instance, I did in Brazil. Then I went to, uh, you have to work internationally. So I went to work in Australia as well. So it was a really cool exchange program at the same time with like very multicultural which was great to, to open the eyes on yeah, the world. I feel like Europeans are significantly better at actually like going and experiencing other cultures. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, as I, met, I mentioned before, I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I moved all of 100 miles from University of California, Davis, all the way to San Francisco. <laughs> but <laughs> you, can, it, you can see so much in the US that's so different. So uh, yeah, yeah so exactly. I also noticed that you spent some time at McKinsey. I mean, McKinsey is widely considered one of the best, you know, sort of consulting firms globally and pretty high caliber individuals that work within those four walls. I guess, what was sort of the most salient thing you took away from that experience as an intern? It was, it was very interesting. It was like through the program, we were working with, with McKinsey on essentially building some, they have a, some application for like companies to price products. So it was really around like building a product for top companies in Europe for better pricing of their product. And it was a really like great learning to see how products start from start to finish and how you get to talk to your users to talk to a lot of like executive level uh, there to see how they use pricing and re-understand the market. So it was a first glance at like understanding product building in, in that sense. Got it. And you did a tour of duty at the dark side, uh, Google and YouTube. And I noticed you won some accolades along the way, you know, sort of President's Cup and things like that. Um, you know, you spent some time in, in, in all sorts of business degrees and business engineering and, and, and things like that. But it sounds like once you actually got to apply those skills, you know, sort of with, within Google, you know, things, things really took off. So what were the, sort of the, the, the main takeaways that you had during that experience that, you know, sort of applied to the work that you're doing today? So I started at Google in at the very, very early days of the cloud team. So Google Cloud was brand new. We were essentially selling Gmail and Google Drive to companies. And I barely understand that. Like it was the inception of it. So I was the second hire in Europe. And now the team is about like 700 people uh, for now. And it was the same leader. She just left now, but it was the same leader who grew from that small team of like 10 people internationally to grow uh, to this. It was kind of experiencing hyper hyper growth within the big company, which was very interesting. Most of it was learning about like how to 
to position a product, understand like talking to customer, like sales is a, is a learning, like you learn sales on how to uh, understand customers and so on. So was pretty successful, did, did that in France, managing France for SMBs, then Africa, and then I moved to the US to, to cover that. And then I stayed at Google to move to YouTube where as on my personal side, I love to make music. So I produce music. Uh, uh, I did some, some amazing before. Well, so, what, what, uh, what genres are we talking about? I would say mostly like electronic pop style, like think of Avicii is a big, big inspiration for instance. So I, no, I've done no. a lot of like, a lot of songs, a lot of different things. It's kind of my, my passion. No, I don't have time anymore, but I, I used to do that <laughs> a lot. And so I moved to YouTube where I was essentially very close to that industry because I was the main contact for music labels for YouTube. So anything that could happen, they would contact me and I would try to figure out internally who to call uh, and to fix the problem basically. And did you hand them your demo and say, please, <laughs> you know, sign me, sign me to your label? It, it's funny. So there's two things in music. It, it seems like, so first of all, yeah. So I had some demos signed before that, actually. But it's very interesting on the entertainment space. Either they see you as an artist or they see you as an industry person. And once mm. you see you as an industry person, you're not an artist because those cannot be the same. And so they, it's very hard. People who try to get into that industry to get closer to be an artist, it's actually getting you further away because they would not see you as an artist, essentially. That's fascinating. I mean, I totally understand it. I mean, it's almost like you've sold your soul to the devil, right? And you, you're, you're sort of lined up with a man. Well, look, after this, I'll share some of the tracks that I put down back in the day on my Fruity Loops. My logic, I'm a logic person. Yeah. I, shout, I, out I like FL, shout out to FL Studio, big fan of their product. But I guess within the walls of, of, of YouTube um, and Google, you probably met some really talented people, probably met a bunch of people who went off and started companies. When did that like itch, you know, the sort of like that... I got to do something. When did that start to grow in your mind? You know, you said you, you, you always thought that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, but when did you start to get that breakout in hives and say, okay, I really need to go, go and start something? I think it was after I joined YouTube, two, two, three years after I joined YouTube, where it was kind of like the dream job to be close to that industry and working with like really big names in, in that industry. I realized that I look, looking at the layer above me, uh, would I want to be there in 10 years? Uh, and the answer was no. And I wanted to make something of myself. And so even from an exterior perspective, like the, the role was amazing. Internally, I was not satisfied in terms of like, I wanted to build something and launch something new and like really put myself to, to the test. So what I did is I looked at how much I spent within a year and said, I'm going to lose that money and invest in all myself. And so essentially put, I think it was around like 60K, uh, that would spend living like not too expensively in the Bay Area. Ramen profitable. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I said, like, I take those 60K, I'm losing those 60K for one year and I give myself one year uh, a shot. So I resigned and started working on product. So I initially started working with a physical therapist. I wanted to do the Peloton for physical therapy, realizing mm. uh, healthcare is a very hard problem to crack. Um, and then that was at the time that NFT blew up. And I, was following crypto for a while yep. and I really saw NFTs as a way of like proving ownership of something that's digital. And I was like, why don't we tie it back to something physical? And the most obvious case is of course, real estate. And I did some digging there and it's actually pretty difficult 
uh, from a legal perspective, like to, to, to go against like title companies and so on. And so I was like, why don't we use something of high value that we would store somewhere? And so that's how the, the whole story started. Um, reached out to like the most secure company in the world, because why would we trust people in their garage building something and not trust like a big entity who's usually like famous for transporting high value stuff, uh, which is brings. And so that's how pick up the phone, we pick up the phone and like we launch a conversation there. Brinks, for those of you who don't know, is basically a armored vehicle that goes around town picking up bags of cash from banks and is also one of the largest security companies. Like if you need to transport something of value, you call Brinks. And they even have these whole these small holes on the side of a of their trucks where if all hell breaks loose, they can stick a gun out of this hole to, mow down, to mow, mow down any unsavory characters. But I, I want to get into that that part of the, the sort of product evolution because I think it's really interesting and a really smart tactic that you essentially partnered for credibility. And I think that that's a really valuable lesson for our listeners, especially if you're like a younger startup founder you know, you got the badge of honor from YC, which we'll get into. That adds some credibility. But, you know, people in the collectibles world may not care. You know what I mean? But they definitely will care if you're carrying the Brinks name around. So so, so we'll get into that. You had, you had your initial 60K of, like, life savings that you were putting everything into. Did you do a pass the hat around friends and family? Like, you know, I have this idea. Or did you say, like, I'm, I only you know, want to rely on myself and, and that's about it. Yeah. So, so I was able to, uh, like the, I was able to save a bit more than like I was working for seven years, uh, by then. Uh, but I basically said like those 60 K is like an investment on myself. Right. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to lose that money. It's not going to be there, um, for this. And it, it really gives me freedom of space to try to explore something without having to think like, I still haven't found something I need to figure it out. Having that free space, like I started to look for a partner for like engineering side because I'm still like I'm very like technical, but I, I'm not like I'm, I'm more on the business side than on the engineering side. And I had like a, a great partner for that, but it turns out like he had his own project at the same time. And so right when I was leaving Google, he decided to move with his own project. So I was alone three days before I leave Google. Uh, I went online on LinkedIn and searched for everyone with the title engineer in my network and contacted <laughs> them. Um, literally. Uh, I love it. I love it. Literally. I went on internal groups at Google. So people who were interested in crypto and emailed them on LinkedIn. And so there was actually two people that were kind of interested of the concept. They find it interesting. And I essentially told them, why don't you guys talk together without me? And they really got on well. And so the next thing you know, we were three interested in like launching. Wow. Together. I like that idea actually, which is like, it's like an interesting tactic to get uh, a, a group of folks to work on something together. Um, because anything, anything, any new person brings more value because it's like, oh, there's not only him, but this other person who works at Google and this other person who works at Apple. Oh, yeah. now next thing you know, you're more interesting for a prospect for anyone to join the company. Anyone who joins makes it more interesting for new people to join the project and it gives kind of legitimacy. Yeah, and look, I think that there's this, you know, pretty strong set of standards in Silicon Valley and the startup world that like you must have a co-founder and you must have known them your entire life and grown up with them 
and or had worked with them for 10 years. And like the reality is, is that's very difficult to find. But it's important to have a co-founder because the ups and downs of the startup journey are quite difficult. And, it, you know, having that early team that will weather all of the punches that come in the boxing ring uh, is really, is really important. And so you, you all got together and, and it sounds like you were off to the races. You wrote your first line of code 2021. When was the, when was the sort of the, the kickoff and then when did you launch? So the kickoff was, we, we were looking to prove the model. So we, we started partnership with brings like the conversation. It, it takes time to, to sign something. Right. And so we had to deal, talk with them and like, Discuss with them. They they were not storing those type of assets, like collectible assets, most mostly metal and uh, and coins, some some artworks, and so that took some time. And then we were thinking of okay, how can we prove the model? And it was at the time where like NFT drops were blowing up, and what we said is like we let's pick one type of asset that people have nostalgia on, and it was Pokemon cards. So it turns out Pokemon cards, if you don't know, can be worth a lot of money. Uh, it could be worth like $500,000 for a Charizard with like the best condition and like the best grade and so on. And so we went ahead on the market and decided we're going to buy Pokemon cards and do an unrevealed NFT drops store where you don't know what's inside the pack. Everybody pays the same price and we kind of recreate the NFT drop with those Pokemon cards because you have a reveal. You can open it. You might get like a $50,000 card or you might get like a $200 card. And everybody pays the same price. We we went ahead, and a friend of mine from who's an engineer in the Bay Area, uh, we were having dinner, and he was like, "How are you going to buy the card?" And foolishly, initially, I thought we're going to sell those and then buy the card easily. And then by the time we buy the card, we're going to provide the reveal, which was a nightmare to do. Thank God we didn't do that. Um, <laughs> so he was he essentially lent us five hundred thousand um, dollars for a, a small part of like at the time we were not anything prefer a small part of like of shares uh, where it was mm. essentially a lending where we said that if we don't sell the card, you own those cards. And so mm. he lent us $500,000. We went online on the top platform and just went ahead and bought all those cards, started to do 3d modeling of those cards, like build like all the old infrastructure to start doing it. Uh, it was literally in my living room, start doing that, bring them to Brinks, store them at Brinks. And then we did this drop, which was a success because we sold out in like three hours. Uh, all the wow. Cards. Wow. Starting building the community. And then next thing you know, we had like a proof of concept of like people are interested in owning those digital collectible, those physical collectible in a digital way. And that was kind of like the first iteration of how we launched this new technology, which is anyone can take physical assets that they have high value, store them securely and have a digital version of those. I think the fascinating thing about that is you, you sort of like the method at by which you were going to securitize and or finance this product and or this service, completely unknown. You just stumbled into it <laughs> like, hey, man, can we borrow $500,000? We have no idea how we're going to buy this thing. You know, a lot of these early product market fit or glimmers of it are hacky and they really are. And, and a lot of people don't know that. And I think that that's, that's the way to do it is just kind of try a bunch of things out. And it, it sounds like that's one way to get it to the flywheel going. I, I think our motto um, is really to focus around the word schlep, uh, which is something that YC says a lot, which I think in German means like carrying. Uh, it's like it's, just, it's a Yiddish word. It's a Yiddish word that means heavy, heavy burden or heavy lift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's essentially like focusing on like just doing 
the thing that don't scale and like we can do all the picture like we took all the picture initially manually and then we found a process to scale it but like we really yeah we went to market very scrappily let's put it <laughs> that's amazing at this point you're probably starting to say hey borrowing money from you know, like random engineers is probably not the best idea maybe we should go out and raise some capital or did you was that your moment of then applying to YC, I guess, because you guys started to think about putting an application together at that point? So funny enough, YC, I was, I, I love YC in general, uh, but like we realized the NFV application is in two days and we, should we apply? And so we applied kind of on the spot and we pulled out the application like two days before did a video where we were all remotely. And we ended up getting in because of like, I guess the approach. So that was, that was a great journey, um, but it was not planned in advance. It was literally, let's, we have this concept, like, should we apply to YC? Okay. It's in two days. Let's, let's do the application and start getting in. By the way, I, I recommend most founders to do it that way. If you come up with this like grand conceived plan and you put all of your hopes and dreams into it and you don't get in it's uh which i mean the percentage of acceptance is still very low so yeah. you, you had some elder statesmen as as partners including my, one of my favorites uh, dalton and and another one is harge i guess dalton and harge, yeah. they're, great. They're, they're they're phenomenal and 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 just so much institutional knowledge it's it's painful it's almost painful like how yeah. How wonderful they are and um what were some of the main takeaways for you during that time that you really kind of echo in your mind i would say it's mostly around focus on talking to your users build bias to action launch things test see how it evolved if it doesn't work fine understand why move to another like another area like it's okay to pivot as long as you're very agile and you keep on like it's loop cycle of like learning, iterating, learning, iterating, and not seeing this as like building up to a launch and then what then, right? So it's more about like trying to get like this constant iteration of like feedback loop to build stuff and like bias to action on that, which I think was, was great because there's a lot of distractions. Seems like when, when, when I launched, we, we could think of, oh, maybe we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And so there's a lot of distraction that can happen and not focusing on building to the product and building for the users, right? And having this constant reminder of like, focus on your users was, was really key. Yeah, and that's great. And I think it's, it's an important thing that a lot of entrepreneurs hear, but they don't take to heart, right? Like, especially in crypto and the NFT world, there's like conferences and like all these fun events and like, you know, discord channels and things that you could be spending a bunch of time on that are vanity at the end of the day, you know, your, your, what you need to do is get more collectibles and get more people to buy those and do a better job of doing that. That's pretty much it. You know what I mean? Like over and over and over again. Um, and everything exactly. else, everything else is kind of noise. And so, you know, like a coach or like a really good teacher, I think folks like Dalton, can really hold your feet to the fire in that way. And, you know, I, I harp on this almost every episode. If you are a non-YC, non-incubated, non-accelerated founder, reach out to me and I will hold you accountable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Find exactly, three, yeah. three or, or find, find three or five friends and say, every week I'm going to send you an update. And if those numbers aren't getting better and I haven't talked to more customers, then pick up the phone and tell me I need to be doing a better job. 
Um, you know, I think it's all about picking up the phone and talking to people and yeah. creating opportunity. Like you can create chains there. So yeah. So walk me through like what were the some of the early metrics that made you you know, you did the first drop with Charizard and you know the NFTs are in Pokemon and I guess you probably wanted to have your next act. How did things progress from there? Did you start to feel like you were getting some indication of product market fit? Were there bumps along the way? Talk me through sort of the wiggles of false hope that you were starting to feel. So at the time, it was the boom of the NFT market. And uh, any anything that would launch would essentially create a FOMO and people were just trying to get it, right? We saw a lot of like brands as, uh, also looking into getting into the space. So we actually launched something around sneakers called Sneaks That World. It's still live where we essentially bought sneakers from trusted marketplace and put them for sale as an NFT redeemable. So you would have like the 3D model of the NFT and the actual image of the NFT photographed at the vault that you could click on actually redeem the asset and we ship it to you. So in what, what we're doing has a lot of like components are difficult because it's non-software only and thanks to our partnership, we, we can scale it very easily, but like everything around like being compliant from taxes, being uh, able to, if somebody is in Japan and decides to redeem an asset, how do you ship it to Japan? How do you pay custom fee in Japan? What are the sales tax applying for that based on the country? And so there, there's a lot of like different pieces that we had to build in a really like thoughtful way. Also, also on the legal side, because there has not been a physically backed NFTs, what we call connected collectible, that hasn't existed before. There was a lot of like nuances to build with the legal team as well. Also, there is a lot of education to, to be happening because users don't directly associate NFTs with something physically backed. And so what am I getting both of them together? No, actually I can redeem it there. And so there is a lot of education and we're still working on that. And it's one of the, our biggest challenge because you have the people into NFTs and then you have the people that are hating NFTs. And so we, we're trying to solve for both both of those people. We call this uh, connected collectibles because same as mm. connect your wallet is like a collectible that's connected, right? Um, and we're really trying to educate users on this is something where you can, if you have a high value asset or a collectible, you can ship it to us for free. We store it and insure it. So you ship it to a Brings Vault, we store and insure it. If you change your mind, you can get that asset back whenever you want for free. Mm. Or if you decide to sell it, you can sell it on various marketplaces and you can post it online as a verified digital asset. And so we are constantly trying to educate users around that. And so that's why we're going to do a lot more activation next year where we're going to have actual like armor truck, for instance, at the conference where you can just go and like give your assets, give your card, give your like maybe sneakers. We store it and we give you an NFT on the spot, for instance. Mm. Um, so those are the type of things we're trying to do to really educate people of like this new technology that can really facilitate a new way of uh, collecting that's more safe and more uh, like allows you to share it in the digital space as well. You know, there's nothing better than a VC on a podcast giving you product advice, but I'm going to do it anyways. You could set up at uh, Art Basel and just take people's art that they procure in that moment and just ship it off and then send them a frame television with the NFT <laughs> in their living room and just say, like, I, I own this. It's not here, but it's very valuable. Exactly. So, um yeah, it was, it was just at our battle last week as well. Uh, yeah, but those are the type of things we're working for, for next year uh, on, on similar activation. Yeah. 
And I think this is a great way to get retail into NFTs because I think it probably translates a lot more easily. And and I think that the reality is, is that there's a lot of turmoil in the market. I guess, how are you guys weathering the storm and what's your prediction on, you know, how things will look in the future? I mean, you know, spoiler alert, one of your backers is OpenSea, which is highly regarded. You know, there's a handful of players like Coinbase who are highly regarded you know, especially in the exchange world, the whole next evolution of crypto and NFTs is going to have to require, you know, a level of transparency and authenticity and, you know, security that I think will really bring this next wave of consumers on the market. Talk to that a little bit and tell me your feelings about. So 100% agree. Now is the time where people are looking for more useful application of the technology. And I, I believe that what we have has a clear application. And so it's actually a good time for us because more and more project, uh, I, I was mentioning, I was at Arbezo last week. I don't hear anymore about we're launching this PFP project with this community of CyberDuck or uh, you don't hear those type of projects anymore. It's more about when you talk to people, it's we're launching this decentralized social network or we're launching this like application. So it's much more about like utility and using the crypto ecosystem and the value of crypto uh, to facilitate new use case. And so because of what we have, which is facilitating the ownership and transaction of assets in a decentralized manner where you can, you don't have to use our platform to buy and sell. You can use OpenSea, you can soon use Instagram to post and share, you can soon use um, like whatever other platform and we still are able to say, we can verify that you own that asset, even if you sold it to somebody in wherever in the world and we can ship it to you and have this like way of like asset doesn't have to move and not everything can be traded, really brings a lot of value and utility from that. So I would say we still see a kind of a slowdown on the market because of everything happening with like the lack of trust that happened. And I think the key players, you mentioned like OpenSea, Coinbase, those are key players who are going to win by keeping trust. And like, and that's why we do everything. We might not be the, the flashiest initially, right? But we want to do everything the right way with the right partnerships and the right processes so that everything is as secure and we cannot afford to, to fail. And so that's why we partner with Brains. That's why we have those very standard processes where, for instance, a, a simple thing, like if you ship a package, there will be a camera op when we open the package so that if there's any issue or something, we can see those. Like, so a lot of those processes are needed to be in place to make sure we, we keep the trust of the users. In my instance, I found a bunch of old trading cards like Michael Jordan's second year sticker and Hakeem Olajuwon USA Olympics card and oh, nice. my Ken Griffey Jr. Jr. rookie card. And, you know, I was like, whoa, these are like good cards. And so then I was like, okay, so how would I get this graded and stored? And I mean, I love these cards. I don't want to hang. I mean, I, I don't even know what they're worth. Like there's not a fluid market really, unless I go to eBay. And then on eBay, you have to sell something that's been PSA certified, right? And there's like this whole, it, it, it's so um, undeveloped from a technology standpoint. And so... It's really, I think if you nail the trust side of the business, the market, the market is massive, you know? So we're not shy about what the, what the name of our pod is. We're called Seed Stories. And so I want to get to the announcement about your seed round. 
But talk to me a little bit about how you fundraised. You know, what was your approach? Did you follow the quote unquote YC playbook or did you have a different bit of a style? And how did things go? I think we we really focused on the right. Uh, so initially we, we had a bit of interest. Uh, this new technology, it was at the time where crypto was really, really the focus for the majority of the funds, right? And we have a key application for that technology. Like the future, if successful, and we, we will be successful, it, it's difficult to enter what we're doing because you need the trust, you need the infrastructure, you need a, a lot of the things that are hard to build. But at the same time, it has a potential for massive because we're so like low level, which is we take physical assets to and we turn them digital. And if you have the digital, we turn it physical and ship it to you. So we're so basic on that level, it has a huge potential for scaling. And I think like users, like um, investors saw that, uh, saw that coming. So it was essentially, we, we really chatted with, like had a lot of people reaching out and we were really selected. We didn't want to raise a two of a like crazy high, like hey, here's a 200 million valuation because we knew that we wanted to build like a solid business that would be there for scaling for the future, right? So we're more picky on like choosing who we want to work with and who can really help us bring the different pieces area to to scale a business there. So it was much more about like a fit. And so talk to a lot of lot of uh, people that were so many great people in 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 the valley that will helping introducing us to other like companies that would be helpful and so on and so yeah. So it sounds like you had what I would call a rare fundraising process where everybody was beating down your door. And I try to make this clear to a lot of the listeners that inbound interest is, is a rarity, but it seems like you were pretty articulate and thoughtful. So for the listeners out there, when this does happen, you know, don't take every meeting, you know, just be, you know, this is the job of a VC, right? Their job is to sell you money, right? And, and so one of the points of that is to really think, you know, who's who's going to be the right person to be along for this ride. The average, you know, startup venture partner relationship can last as long as as ten years, which is I think beats the average marriage. So, <laughs> you know, I think think about that when you when you go to the altar. You know, I guess did you line up the meetings in a way that I guess to sort of ask the question directly, like. Did you gamify the process to meet with a certain type of partners in advance, or did you just select like, here are the 20 or 30 that we know we are, are in our wheelhouse, and these are the ones we're going to meet with, and we'll just do it all in one, one or two weeks? Or were you thoughtful to be like, maybe we'll do some practice pitches with a few that we're less excited about first? No, I actually it was more like based on the inbound, we were just so focused on building the product that we, we took those meetings without without specifically thinking about like we, we absolutely need to raise right now. And it was more about like keep on building on the product and keep on like iterating and selling like the vision because we were lo looking for a partner who understood that vision that will like was going to help us achieve that right so we're very happy with uh with the, the people we ended up partnering because they bring a lot of a lot of value there it was not specifically around like let's put two weeks and have all those meetings scheduled and, and book some time on this it was it was not at all uh, on that end yeah so seven million from nea OpenSea ventures vayner fund brinks cherry ventures bunch of angels you know jonathan at nea was was the sort of lion's share of it and sounds like a you know nea is a household name top tier venture fund 
and pretty exciting for a seed seed round size. On the hefty side, did you think a little bit about that? Hey, we might be going into a downturn soon. Like, let's try to raise as much as possible. Definitely. I talked to Jonathan quite a bit about that. So we, we initially thought to, to raise a bit less, but then we saw like the potential downturn on this. And so we wanted to keep quite a big of a runway so that we have more flex flexibility to really build that company the right way and not having to rush and skip steps for, for that. So that this is why like, we ended up raising a bit of a bigger round uh, on that end. But yeah, it was uh, it was a good call. Really good yeah. Call. Yep. Yep. Brilliant, brilliant move. And, you know, I think that the, the execution is very solid. So look, I always like to end on what does the next 12 months look like? What does the next 10 years look like at, at Courtyard? The next 12 months are going to be focusing on assets on the platform. So you will start seeing a lot more assets of high value collectible. And anyone who's listening can actually go to us. We provide you the shipping label and you can ship the, the asset to uh, the vault facilities and within like a couple of days, we give you an NFT in your wallet that you can redeem if you want for free, or you can trade globally. And we actually incentivize users right now by providing them 1% royalty for the future sale of that NFT. So to reward you to bring the asset on the platform, if you sell your NFT to a certain person and that person sells it again, and that NFT sells 50 times, you would make 50 times 1% of that transaction. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, to, to kind of reward user there. So next year, to answer your question, next year is going to be focused around like onboarding as many assets as possible, build those activation, educate people around this new technology that they could use. And you don't need to have your collectible sitting at home. You can have it like stored and you can get it whenever you want. You just don't need to have it there and you can showcase digitally. I think 20 years from now, where we want to be is really, we want to be the hustle name for like we digitalized stuff. Uh, so any bridge, like the bridge between physical and digital goes through us and we're a trusted party for that. So I think like real estate is going to be big in the future. What would you buy and go to the notary? Like it could be proven as an ownership on the blockchain, for instance, or anything around like valuable assets would be gold, uh, gold bars, for instance. People keep gold bars at their house because they don't want to buy an ETF because it's just this number. They, they like to see the physical and we provide like actually a picture of the asset. With the, you know, you can get it at home whenever you want it. It's your ownership. And so the, I think there is a lot of like alternative assets that are going to go there. And we're just going to be the link between, between those basically. When, when I can afford my garage full of fine Italian automobiles, I know where exactly. I'm going. <laughs> I know where exactly. I'm going. Because you don't to. want them at home. It, it's too risky for you, right? Even if you have like, let's say, a Jackson Pollock on your wall and you have kids. Yeah. Maybe you don't want like this $2 million asset to be like destroyed for some reason. So people usually have fakes or like copies at home. Uh, like all the art world is a big thing. There, there's just so much that, that can happen in there. And maybe finally it's around brands. We really help brands provide that new wave of like Web3 to sell their product in a digital version and the link between physical and digital. So we've been exploring a lot with the brands there. Phenomenal. Nicholas, the, the future is bright for Courtyard. You know, yeah. congrats on the successful seed raise. It's just the beginning. It's early innings, but you guys are off to the races. And so thanks again for joining on the show. It was really nice to have you. Thanks. Thank you, Thank you so much.